The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to the final Squawk Box of 2020. Here are your headlines. Signed and sealed, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson signed the Brexit trade agreement after lawmakers overwhelmingly approved the deal, with the country set to complete its exit from the EU tonight. From January the 1st, uh, after all this uh, four and a half years, we got certainty for, uh, for business, we got certainty for hauliers, uh, for aviation. The Prime Minister also expands coronavirus restrictions across the UK, with health officials warning of a very dangerous situation amid rising cases and deaths. Chinese equities end the year on a high as factory activity expands in December, but higher costs sees the pace of growth slow. And the EU and China strike an investment deal, giving European companies better access to Chinese markets after seven years of talks. We'll speak to the EU Commission's Valdis Dombrovskis at 9.15 CET. Well, good morning, everybody. We made it to the last day of the year, December 31. What a year it has been looking back at 2020, the year of the pandemic, but also the year of Brexit. It's finally happened. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has signed the post-Brexit trade deal after British lawmakers overwhelmingly backed the agreement with the EU. The deal brings to an end a four and a half year process. It feels like it was much longer. That began in June 2016 when Britons voted to leave the bloc. So we have seen a lot of volatility in the currency this year as going back to spring levels when we got as low as 117. And since then, obviously, we have rebounded quite significantly. In the last six months alone, the pound has rebounded 10%, three months up 6%. And you can see this is where we are for the pounds right now, just above that 136 level. It has been somewhat of a bellwether for how these Brexit talks are going. When things were going well, we saw a, a rally in the pounds. When things were not looking like they were going to go so well, we saw the pound get sold off. So uh, with now we, the formalization of this deal on the table, the UK is formally exiting the EU and will become a third member as of 11 p.m. tonight. This is where the pound is trading, 136.30. So we've come a long way since some of those lows back in the spring. But Boris Johnson hailed the deal, saying it did remove uncertainty. What this deal gives us is, I would say, uh, pretty much the best of both worlds, because you have a gigantic uh, free trade agreement, but you also have the flexibility that people wanted and that uh, we all care about to do things differently and better uh, if you uh, if you choose. And it means certainty. You know, from January the 1st, uh, after all this uh, four and a half years, we got certainty for, uh, for business, we got certainty for hauliers, uh, for aviation. All right, let's bring in our first guest of the show today, Arturo Brees, Professor of Economics from IAD Business School. Uh, I want to start off by asking you whether or not you think this Brexit deal is a good deal for the UK. Uh, good morning. I think it's a good deal for everyone, uh, especially given the starting point of the deal, which is the 2016 referendum. Obviously, I think that is a win-win, especially also given that the alternative would have been a, a no-deal situation. Having said that, I think that at the end of the day, the European Union had the strong 
arm in the negotiation. And I think it fares much better than the UK does. Right. I mean, you say that, but the UK did actually manage to get zero tariffs, zero quota. They got an independent judiciary body to oversee any disputes they may have. So moving away from the European Court of Justice. And I remember when Theresa May used to talk about that, people would say, well, you can't have your cake and eat it. But the UK actually have managed to secure two very important principles in these discussions. But again, we need to we need to look at the starting point. And the starting point was 2016, a period uh, uh, that that uh, that was a climax on the relationship between the the European Union and and the UK. Um, and before that day, um, the way how the UK dealt with the European Union was kind of an unfaithful member. And I think it grabbed much more from the European Union. For example, uh, the UK rebate uh, when it was a member uh, than now. Uh, in the deal itself. So comparing to the previous situation, certainly the UK is not much better off. Well, one other aspect of the deal that's missing, and we've talked about this a lot, is the absence of services. There's no mention of services. I mean, there is a mention of services in the deal, but there's no a deal per se on services or either financial services. What do you think this means for the future of the finance industry in the UK and also uh, for the future of the city of London? Yes, I think that's one of the big uncertainties, uh, how passporting is going to operate. And it's something that has not been agreed upon yet. Uh, obviously, there's a huge imbalance here. There are many more UK financial institutions operating in the European Union than vice versa. And, and I think in that sense, for the European Union, getting back part of the financial services that had emigrated, let's say, to the United Kingdom, and also bringing back other international financial institutions from, for example, Switzerland or Japan, that in order to get an EU a, a passport, were operating in the UK, is going to be now paramount. I think this is going to be critical. I think that there is a lot of uncertainty, the biggest uncertainty, and also the one that is going to mark truly what is going to be the outcome of the Brexit deal, because these negotiations are going to come in the next months. And as you know, as financial services represent a big part of the UK economy. And, and that's going to be certainly something that we'll need to figure out in the coming weeks. I mean, you could you could look at this argument from both perspectives, because you, you could say that the UK would be at the whim of the EU when setting the equivalence laws. They, they, they have the right to review them every 30 days. But then equally, the UK also can go about setting its own regulatory regime when it comes to services and financial services, that could put it in a relatively better position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world if they're able to do that. Yeah, but look, I'm speaking from Switzerland, which is a country that has, uh, has reached similar deals with the European Union, but I'm also Spanish. And I think we should, not, uh, we should not forget that the UK represents a small part of the world economy. It's just less than 1% of the world population compared to the European Union. We represent 16% of the world population, 17% of the world GDP. So there is going to be a certain imbalance. And, and the imbalance comes from markets. And the European Union market is much bigger. And in that sense, it's going to be the upper hand in the negotiation. I mean, if you look at the, the, the deal that has been announced today with China on financial services and investments, certainly China will see the European Union as the strong financial power. And in that sense, getting back the, the, the financial services industry that has moved to the city of London uh, 
I've been claiming for many years that it's going to be somehow easy to bring back all those institutions. And we have already seen that in the, in the last years preceding this Brexit agreement, in which many international financial institutions, again, from countries like the United States, but also China and Japan, have moved their headquarters to the European Union. It's still not as much as people had been anticipating. I remember people were anticipating hundreds of thousands of jobs to be moved. Uh, in reality, the number was a lot smaller than that. Just uh, one question, actually, on the future of the European project. Um, when we started talking about the Brexit referendum many, many years ago, it does feel like uh, people were concerned that other countries would want to follow suit and, and follow the UK example. Do you expect to see more of this type of sentiment coming from uh, typically Eurosceptic countries within the EU going forward? In 2016, I remember before the referendum, I wrote an article myself saying that as a Spaniard, if I could vote for Brexit, I would vote yes. Because I said at that time that Brexit would be good for the European Union, particularly because it would increase the cohesion within the European Union. And this, in fact, has happened. I think that before 2016 uh, and even around the referendum, we had, uh, you know, uh, voices in Italy and the Netherlands and Austria that would try to follow suit on the Brexit idea. Now, the European Union, if you look at the European polls, it's more cohesive than it was before. And in fact, the response of the European Union to the COVID-19 crisis has shown an amazing ability to work together. And I think that indeed, um, now we are more cohesive than we used to be. Uh, the geopolitical uh, center of gravity has changed slightly, uh, but I think the adherence and the loyalty to the European Union, but those members that were in principle more problematic has increased. Well, very interesting, sir, uh, your thoughts. And we'll have to, it remains to be seen whether or not that cohesiveness can actually remain with us for, for years to come. Uh, thank you very much for joining Squawk Box on this very last show of the year. I've got to say December 31. <laughs> We're very keen. All right, Arturo, thank you uh, for your time. Arturo Brees, Professor of Economics from the IMD Business School. Well, the UK has expanded its toughest set of virus restrictions to more regions of the country, affecting around 20 million people as cases and deaths continue to rise. Secondary schools across the country will also remain closed for an additional two weeks in a bid to curb the spread of the virus. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson urged the public to redouble its efforts. The difficult news, the tough news, the sad news today is that the new variant is really proving tough to, to fight and we need to uh, be doing everything we can. That's why we're, we're, we're toughening up the tears. Uh, we have encouraging news on the vaccines. But, you know, to turn around your basic question, which is when will all this end? Um, it's vital for people to realize that the answer to that question is not now. And elsewhere, Chinese regulators have approved their first coronavirus vaccine backing a candidate developed by Sinopharm. The pharmaceutical giant says its vaccine is 79% effective and can be stored at regular fridge temperatures. The approval comes from authorities just a day after the UK greenlit another vaccine developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University. And we're going to cut to a quick break, but when we come back, the Chinese recovery shows signs of slowing down, but both services and factory activity expand in December. More in just a few moments.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. China's economic recovery from the coronavirus crisis slowed in December, but factory activity expanded for the month, while the services sector grew for the 10th month in a row, according to official data. Sam filed this report. Well, official data out of China today showed factory activity in the country grew for a 10th straight month in December, signalling a continued steady recovery in the manufacturing sector. The reading did edge down slightly from November, but is still hovering comfortably above that 50 mark that separates growth from contraction. In terms of where this growth came from, new orders continue to hold up well, although dropped slightly from November. That's largely been thanks to a boost in infrastructure spending by the government, which has been used to mitigate some of these external risks. Now, while the new export orders also eased slightly from November, they still came in at 51.3. And that suggests that overseas demand has still been holding up okay too, even as trading partners are seeing a spike in cases and more lockdowns. Now, according to the official data, China's services sector also eased slightly this month from November, but also uh, still saw a 10th month of expansion. Now, the services sector in China, of course, has been slower to recover than the manufacturing side of things amid lingering worries about jobs, pay and the virus. But things have been improving in recent months as consumption has been picking up speed. And we have seen evidence of that through improving retail sales and strong demand for things like autos. Now, of course, this data does look at the bigger and state-owned firms in China. So we will be waiting to see what the Taishin surveys say about how the smaller and private firms held up this month when we get those figures in the new year. In Singapore, I'm Sam Vardis. Back to you. Well, despite the slowing trend in PMI, so what we are seeing is a good balance, a good session for the Chinese equity markets on the very last trading day of the year. The Shanghai ending the session up 1.7%, caps off year-to-date gains of about 13%. Who would have thought, given that just, well, almost one year ago, the coronavirus epicenter was right in the middle of China. But there we are, Shanghai Composite up about 13% for the year. Shenzhen also up about 1.8% in overnight trading as well. And uh, other indices in China also having a good session. Uh, Worth noting that Japan and South Korea were closed for trades overnight. Uh, But let me get at, uh, let's switch and take a look at how US markets closed as well. And here you can see it was yet again another positive session for U.S. equities, we thought that maybe some profit taking would transpire in the last couple of days of the year, but not really. Nasdaq up uh, 20 points, about a tenth of a percentage point higher. S&P about a tenth higher as well. And then the Dow also very squarely above that 30,000 level. 30,400 is where we're at above a quarter of a percentage point higher. And worth noting that the quarter itself was an extremely strong quarter for all of these indices, uh, very strong performance in the last couple of months of the year. Let's take a quick look as well at Europe. uh, And uh, this is what European uh, markets look like year to date. Oh, well, actually, this is just a picture for US markets uh, for the year to date. I forgot to brush over that one. Nasdaq, stellar performance in the tech index, up 43% for the year. S&P up 15%. And then the Dow up 6.6% as well. Bit of a roller coaster ride. And if you think of where we were back in March, April, uh, these indices have recovered spectacularly 
up anything from 50% to, for some of the mega caps to 100% for the small caps, the uh, Russell 2000 index. All right, now we can take a look at the European markets uh, indices. And uh, this is the picture year to date. Well, here actually it doesn't look as pretty as the US and China. So for most of these European indices, they're all pretty much negative for the year. The Spanish index down 14.5%, Italian index down 5.5%, the CAC 40 in France down 6.3%, and then the FTSE, the uh, big one we've all been looking at given the Brexit discussions that have been taking place, FTSE down 13% for the year. So even though we had a very strong recovery in the quarter, up about 13%, the FTSE is still down about 13% for the year. And then Zetradax in Germany is one of the only indices in Europe that have ended the year in positive territory, up 3.6%. Bit of a mixed bag, but vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, it's very clear that European indices have massively underperformed. All right, I want to get out to our first guest, uh, Sean Cargan, the director from Cantillant Consulting. Thanks so much for joining me on the very last show of the year, Sean. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, what do you make of this melt up, melt up? I'm, I'm specifying on the word up here in the last couple of months of the year. I mean, it's just been, you know, the risky assets have been going from strength to strength in the last couple of trading weeks. Well, I guess the point is, is that uh, people don't think they're risky anymore, do they? They've, uh, they've come through the horrors of the spring. They've come through the, the resurgence of difficulties in the autumn. Central banks have uh, stood with the, the fingers firmly pressed on the print key. Uh, the cash is washing around. Um, as we know, uh, a lot of business balance sheets, those that have survived, uh, have yet to deploy the monies they've got. It has to be parked somewhere. Um, individuals have, uh, have accumulated uh, large savings balances all over the last uh, six, nine months. That has to be put somewhere. And the market itself is now just looking at the central banks will do, again, whatever it takes and in bigger and bigger quantities forever. And so they, they, there is no concept of risk in these markets. Mm, and, you know, what, something else that stood out to me yesterday, I was reading a stat that said that three stocks alone, Amazon, Microsoft and Apple account for half of the S&P performance. So, uh, you know, you've got the index, but then half of the index is basically three stocks. What, what do you make of this concentration in, in terms of overall index performance? And you know, what is the point of investing in an index when you know, those three mega caps can have such a big weight in terms of the direction of where we go? Well, clearly it's uh, it's dysfunctional, isn't it? And it's it's kind of it, it's understandable, but it's lazy. Um, you, you know, people are, are wedded to their, their benchmarks and their indexes, so they have to chase it. That's one of the flaws of modern investing: that far too much of it is too automatic, and not uh, and, and doesn't allow for for discretion and disc for discretion and discrimination. Um, it's not quite that that state all across, though. If you look at something like the value line index, that is an equal weighted index, and that has also moved sharply to new highs in the last uh, couple of months in this move. So it isn't just the FANG stocks. And indeed, if you look at the FANG stocks, something that, that we've been recommending since September, we said you can't just keep buying electrons. You can't just keep buying people who pump around information and all make their money out of the services that you can do, you can use online. You have to look at, at, at the real world. You have to look at mines and metals and bricks and mortar. And in fact, as the other theme in the last quarter of the year, which is somewhat surprising given the lockdowns, is commodities have actually firstly outperformed, then held their own against these, these, uh, these super stocks. So, so the shift is there. 
Uh, actually, speaking of commodities, so what's your take on energy stocks here? It's been a torrid year for the energy sector, the worst performing sector by far. But we are beginning to see signs of recovery. And certainly people are looking to 2021 and saying, well, perhaps you might see a recovery in demand there. Uh, are you looking to get involved in energy space? Certainly, there's a lot of value. Well, value can be a bit of a trap, though, isn't it? Because uh, not many, I don't think we have any energy socks because all the CEOs have given up on doing what they've uh, what they've made the money at and what the investors have uh, have given them the, their trust and their belief in for the past hundred years, and they've all become wedded to the Green New Deal. They've all been driven by ESG. Um, you know, BP is now beyond petroleum. So this is the difficulty. Yes. Energy and fossil fuel energy is still going to play an enormous role in our lives for a long time to come, whatever the ambitions of politicians to change that. Uh, the stocks are cheap uh, by any sorts of levels, but are they going to get the sponsorship? Are they going to be able to access the funding uh, in order to bring them back to, to a more sensible balance? We can get rid of the panic low valuations on them, but are they going to make good, solid, long-term investments in this political, ideological environment. That's a difficult issue. And indeed, you've got you know, news like Exxon today with their uh, substantial write-off, uh, irrespective of what's been happening in terms of the overall price performance, that they're still struggling with a lot of structural issues, many of these firms. But speaking of value, uh, I was just going over the year-to-date walls of uh, how European markets compare to US markets and Asian markets, and there's been a massive underperformance on the part of European markets. Do you think 2021, we could see that close in? Perhaps we could see maybe, dare I say it, an outperformance of European markets? Um, the United States is undoubtedly at kind of peak valuations against uh, the rest of the world, pretty much in general, not just Europe. Partly that's an artifact of the fact the dollar has been stronger through most of this period. And of course, that too now is reversing and taking some of the shine off. Um, I guess the issue with Europe is, is the old one. Is, is the European business background uh, as friendly as the American business background? Are European investors as, as keen on, on, on the businesses that they know most about? Are they, are they perhaps more worried that they're going to be in an internal cycle of lockdown? Uh, in contrast to the United States, where we've seen a slightly more laissez-faire, slightly less draconian approach to, to the coronavirus episode. Uh, that, that's that's very difficult to say. Europe still, of course, has its political problems. That there'll be aftershocks from Brexit in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of areas, and, and and maybe that's one of the things that that's depressing sentiment. Mm, so, what are the where are the parts of the market that you do like going into twenty twenty one, Sean? Where are you going to look to deploy your money? Well, I think um, I think the market has done a, a volt fatte in the last uh, six months. Uh, a while. Back in the summer, everybody was on the famous deflationary underconsumption, lack of demand, um, interest rates go deeply negative, nothing ever recovers. Uh, that was their that was their thinking. The the at the time we said yes, the, this we're all going to suppress demand, but is it going to suppress and hinder supply just as much, if not more? And if that's the case, and we have enormous and unprecedented quantities of new money to try to redistribute, whether in financial markets or in the real world, uh, clearly there's going to be an impact in the other direction. And we've seen relative signs of that. We've, uh, we've got some commodities up 40, 60, 80% from their spring lows. Many of them are making four, five, six, eight-year highs. Um, we see things like the freight market is hugely overstressed. Freight rates have tripled and more along the routes out of China this year. Now, now this is 
partly a question of shortage, it's partly a question of disruption. But if you think about what's going to happen in the world in the aftermath of coronavirus, even when we are finally let out, and even when we are, have had our jabs, some of these frictions and some of these difficulties are going to remain. So I think prices are going to rise. Central banks are not going to ease off. They told us that. Governments are going to spend hand over fist and try and re-engineer practically the whole of our lives if we believe in their, in, uh, listen to their Green New Deal pledges. This is all going to be very costly. So I think you have to have inflation trades on, not roaring what Weimar nonsense to begin with. But I think you need to look at your if your if your investment is sensitive to that. Does it benefit? Does it harm it? And that's the way to look. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.